Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you join us as we begin a new series, Behind Family Lines. Today, Jim Fossil, missionary and Bible teacher, guides us as we look at ways to make our marriages and families better. Listen as Jim gives us some key principles that we have to accept and put into practice if we want God to bless our marriage. Using those principles will help us look for the image of God in those around us as we look forward to the best spiritual year of growth in our lives. Good morning. If you're new to Bay Hills, you'll probably find some things that are unusual about this church. We laugh a lot. We joke a lot. Uh, It's not because we're frivolous or shallow. It's just that we enjoy life. And life with Christ is worth being joyful about. (laughs) There's a place for reverence, and we're going to come to that in just a minute. I mean, this is not a a free-for-all. This is not a circus. But we, um, we enjoy life. I saw in the first service this morning one of the couples, more or less my age, I greeted him, played golf with him on some of the occasions we've been here, and uh, we got to talking about whatever. His wife comes up two minutes later and she says, has he told you? I said, what am I missing here? She says, he has on his birthday underwear this morning, his, his Christmas underwear this morning. I put my arm around her, I stood back a step with her, and I looked at him, and I asked what you would ask. Can I see them? <laughs> I hope you had a wonderful Christmas, and that you're uh, looking forward to a great new year. You never know, it might be a tough year for us, economically, physically, whatever. But it can be, because God intends it to be the best spiritual year of growth in your life that you've ever had. That's what we've got to look forward to. And that's worth smiling about, being joyful about. David told me, he said, Dad, we're going to have a uh, three-series thing on marriage. Pick a couple. I picked Adam and Eve. Not because, not because there's a lot on Adam and Eve. The only thing we know, they were created, first marriage, fell into sin, And Moses, the author of Genesis, dedicates nine verses to all of the consequences that they're going to suffer because of their sin and that you and I are going to suffer because of their sin. But I chose Adam and Eve because in Genesis 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, these first pages of the Bible, in each one of those chapters there are some key principles that you have to accept and put into practice if you want God to bless your marriage. Now, before I get into those principles, let me, let me just give you a background. Carol and I have been married for 48 years, and we both came from homes. In this case, our parents were Christians, but their marriage left a tremendous amount to be desired. So much so that when we entered into marriage, we did so with fear and trembling. Are we going to repeat the same stuff that we saw? And we made a promise to one another that we're going to work on our marriage in an effort to try to avoid the experience that our parents went through as married couples. We have not a perfect marriage. Nobody does. But we have a solid and a good and a wonderful marriage that's a blessing to us. The other day when David picked us up at the airport, we're waiting for him to get there because traffic was very heavy. Carolyn says to me, do you think our marriage could get any better? It's not perfect, 
I mean, we're not perfect people, but, you know, it's, marriage is a blessing. And before I get into these three principles, I just want to tell the young people here tonight, this morning, you don't have to get married to be happy. You don't want to hear that, but that's true. You don't have to get married to be happy. But if you choose to marry, you need to know that God can give you a good marriage. That's really worthwhile. You've got to work at it. This, this doesn't come free. And you've got to respect the principles in God's Word. That's the secret. What we're going to see, at least in part this morning, okay? Because there's, you know, life is complicated and sin makes it all the more difficult. And then I marry a sinner and she marries a sinner. It really gets complicated. But there, there is a way out of this. There, there is a way. We're going to see some of that this morning. There's hope for improving this situation. So uh, young people, don't, don't just, you know, chuck it out the window. There's hope for you. Married couples, it's God's intention that when you come to this time next year, your marriage is better than it is right now. Because it can be, therefore it should be. <laughs> okay? Divorcees, there's some in our congregation this morning, I cannot imagine the pain and the suffering you've gone through. I have friends that have gone through this, and it's, it's horrible to watch what they go through. If, perchance, you're still interested in a marriage that gives you joy and happiness instead of pain, that is a reachable goal respecting these principles that we're going to see, and others, because we can't say it all this morning, and asking God to help you. This is still a possibility. You who have lost your husband or wife, you're up in years, you may or may not be considering getting married again, but you've got kids, you've got grandkids, and maybe even got great-grandkids, you need to be praying that God will help them to recognize, accept, and put in the practice the principles we're going to see this morning. My wife, Carolyn, very often prayed with our son, David, who's your pastor, and with our daughter, Becky, who's a missionary in Ireland. When she tucked those kids in at the end of the night, God, prepare the person that's going to be David's wife someday. You think this works? Boy, we can't thank God enough for the wife God's given David. We brag about her wherever we go. I mean, it's, it, this works. It works, but you have to know what works and what to put into practice. Now, let's take a look at the first principle. We're going to throw it up in the screen. This comes out in chapter 1. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And he comes with a couple more words. So God created man in his own image, the image of God, he created them. Just so that you get the point, we're not talking about men, male. We're talking about mankind, them. Male and female, he created them with the understanding in the image of God. You cannot miss this emphasis. What it basically says is, in spite of the fact that men and women are different by nature, and we'll get into some of this in a, in a second, they are equal of equal value as human beings before God. Huge, huge. This is huge for marriage as well as a lot of other things. Now, this image of God thing, what's that all about? Basically, it's this. You and I are like photographs. If I whip out of my wallet a photo and say, this is my wife. No, 
This is not my wife. My wife is sitting there. This is a photograph. It's a resemblance of. In some respects, this photo resembles or is an image of what she's really like in the flesh. You can shake her hand later on or give her a hug. Okay, but this is just a reflection. Okay, you and I are a reflection of God. For example, Adam was born without sin. He'd never experienced sin. He had the possibility of sinning if he wanted to, and he did. But God, God cannot sin. It's, it just, it goes against his nature. He's incapable of sinning. God made Adam eternal from the point at which he was created. And even though he died physically, we live after death. We are eternal from December 12th, 1941. I'm what, 71, 72 years of age now? You get, get to a point where you kind of forget it. Doesn't make any difference. Nothing you can do about it. Okay, from that point forward. Yeah, but God is eternal from now backwards and forwards. He has no beginning. He has no end. So I, I resemble him, but I'm not exactly like him, nor are you. God's a person. There are three of them. Psychologists tell us that personality has to do with uh, intelligence, Excuse me, that's the way we start number one in Europe. <laughs> Not number one, number one. He named all the animals. He was smart. Yeah, but God knows everything. He's really smart, you know. Uh, personality also involves um, volition, the ability to make a decision based on reasons rather than just instinct and reactions. It also includes emotions. God has all of those. And you can find all kinds of verses in Scripture about that aspect. It's a person. Um, but what, what does all this image have to do with marriage? There are many ways in which Adam could glorify God. Now you say, why does he make us like that in his image? I remember years and years ago when David was about 20, 21, 22 years of age. I don't know where Carolyn was, but we were we went out for breakfast together. And the conversation we had made such an impact on me, I still remember what restaurant it was in Chicago. I forget what we were talking about. And right in the middle of the conversation, David says to me, Dad, I want you to know something. You and Mom have been an inspiration to me. I want to be like you are. How do you think that made me feel as a father? Can I use a biblical word? I felt absolutely glorified. This son, this kid, <laughs> that his mother and I had created, he's the creation, we're the creators, is telling the creators, I want to be like you are. And every time you and I, as human beings, we act like God acts, we think like God thinks, and we have the kind of emotions that we have, and God has those same ones, we glorify God. You and I need to remember, when we get real big on ourselves, who we really are. We're just mere creation. That's big stuff, but it's just mere creation. The Creator is way above and beyond us. And our job here as the creation of God is to be like our creator. Because when we do that, we glorify him. But there was one aspect that Adam couldn't pull off as far as what God is like. Uh, God is one, but he exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, Christianity 
Catholics and Protestants of life have maintained that doctrine for centuries. I mean, this is one of the rock-bottom fundamental truths of what God is like. He's three, but he's one. The mathematics don't come out for us. But we know enough about the Bible to know that it's the inspired word of God without error. And even though we don't have an explanation for that, we believe it. All right. Having said that, here's Adam. Now, in, in, in the Trinity, the three persons of the Trinity have different jobs. Christ dies on the cross, not the Holy Spirit. And yet, they're all equally God. And they work in perfect unity and harmony. Now, why would God create marriage? He didn't have to do this to ensure the continuance of the human race. He could have created millions and billions of human beings just like that. He did with the first two anyhow. Why can't he make more? I suggest to you that what he's doing is this. He's saying, look, if you're going to glorify me in your marriage, I want to see unity and harmony. Because when the two of you work together like we do, you glorify us. Do you see where this is going? So I'm suggesting to you marriage, the goal of marriage, is not to have legitimate sex, to have children, or to necessarily have somebody to live with that you can kind of, you know, argue with or do whatever you want to talk to. Your goal, the primary goal of marriage, is that you and your spouse work together in harmony and unity and thus glorify our Creator. That's something Adam could not do alone. He couldn't do it alone. Now, at this point, some are going to say, unity and harmony is the last thing we have in our marriage. My spouse, he or she was born for battle. They're not even interested in unity. <laughs> you know, we, we get into these situations. Sin, sin. When sin enters the world, it absolutely massacres the human, the image of God in us. It does not destroy it. And as we're going to see in a moment, it can be recuperated. Little by little. We haven't lost it completely. We can recuperate it. Okay? Now, but before we get to that, at least two applications of what we're saying here. Number one, men and women, because this is a two-way street. Your spouse, the same as any human being, I don't care how wretched a person they may be, they are made in the image of God. And if you look hard enough, you'll see something of it. Your spouse has been made in the image of God. Your spouse is equal before you, before God as a human being. Number two. Number two, one of the first things we can do, and therefore we should do, is look, even though it might be hard, look hard for the things in your spouse's life that do reflect, reflect well God's image. It might be something as simple as creativity, organizational skills, a sense of justice, or whatever. And then take the additional step. Now, this is the tough one especially if you're, you know, at it, day and night. Say it. Say it. Come on, come down off your horse and say it to your wife or to your husband. You know, you're really good at that. 
And if they respond, whoa, 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 what's this? Just back off. <laughs> you know, you get into some of these fights, and it, there's no easy way out, but at least you have to start some way. You, you have to learn how to give a compliment because there is much in your spouse that can be seen of the image of God. You just have to look for it. You might have to look harder in some cases than others, but it's there. Compliment it. Okay? Now, let's take a look at the second uh, principle besides respecting the image of God. Make use of the suitable help of your spouse. Now, the interesting thing about this verse in chapter 2 is that it was said before the fall in sin. Before. Now, here's the situation. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. Let's stop right there. You say, oh, man, God all of a sudden says, I made a mistake. Uh, or it caught him by surprise. No, no, no. Just, this is another way of saying, look. It is not good for the man to be alone. I have created him perfectly, perfectly. What I've done is perfect. It's right where it should be, but it's incomplete. I made him on purpose incomplete in and of himself. Okay? There's a big difference between imperfection and incomplete. You you, you see the difference, okay? I will make a helper suitable to him which assumes that the wife also needs a helper. I mean, she's not coming, she's got it all, you know, all, all together, and I'm here to help you, you poor jerk. No, 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 they both need help. Even though they've not fallen into sin yet. This is very, very interesting. I'll make a suitable helper suitable for him. Next step. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and he goes through and what he names them. No, no, no. See, what? Whoa, 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 just a second. Couldn't that have waited? Why, why does he get into that before he says, but for Adam no suitable helper was found? What's he doing? He's basically giving Adam um, a Sunday school lesson, if you, mean, if you understand what I mean. Adam names the animals. He can look up and worship God. He can look down and rule the creation. But he, when he looks around him, there's nobody like him with whom he can share his life. I had a Bible college professor who said, not even God was enough. And you understand in this context what we're saying. God says, you know, it's not enough for you to have a relationship with me. You need a relationship with somebody else. Now, you don't have to get married to have a relationship, a solid friendship relationship. I mean, there are examples of this in the Bible. But the point is, God is giving to Adam... A helpmate. Now, helpmate in what sense? Well, first of all, he needs a companion, but there's a lot more here. Guys, you already know that women are different than men. That's why we say, who can understand a woman? Because they're different. Women, you know that men are different than women. That's why many, where is my mind's, my husband's mind? You know, we just, we, we, our viewpoint of life and how we look at certain things, this is not being sexist, it's just recognizing what it is. Men are different. Women are different. Women go on retreats. They talk and they talk and they talk. Somebody corrected me. They have men's retreats in this church. This church is very unusual because there are no men's retreats. Men don't need to talk. Just, we're just different. We wouldn't know what to do with ourselves. I mean, just that's not being sexist. It's not wrong. It's not sinful. It's just different. It's just different. But then, you know, um, you get into some other things. You know, he, he didn't need help. 
He didn't need help keeping the garden in order. He already did that by himself. He didn't need a cook. He just took the stuff off the trees, the fruit off the trees. He certainly didn't need anybody to iron his clothes. He didn't wear any. So exactly what is it she's supposed to help him with? She comes with a viewpoint on life itself that we men just don't have. And when men make decisions all by themselves, they can get into some pretty serious problems if they don't have a woman's viewpoint. By the same token, women can get into some very serious problems, make some horrible decisions if they don't have a man's viewpoint. It's just the way it is because we come at life a little bit different. Now, none of this is sinful right now, but take a look at some of these, um, some of these other differences. We found a book a couple of years ago that's been enormous help to us personally and in the conferences we give for couples in Spain. Uh, this, this couple, these two authors, they said, look at all the ways pure people are different. Now, no one's 100% one and zero the other. There's a combination, 70, 30, 65, 35%, you know, they're all spread out. There's nothing here that's, oh, this is typically masculine or this is typically feminine. It's just not that way. It's just, it's spread out equally among us. There are people who think with their hearts. They're subjective. They make decisions with their hearts. The others who make decisions with their head. Yeah, they say 60% of the women make it with their heart. 60% of the men make it with their head. But, you know, for 10%, it's equal. There's nothing sexist here. You've got the visionaries. They're always looking to the future, what, where, where we could get. And the other person said, yeah, where's the money going to come from? You need them both. Otherwise, you're in trouble. The realistic people never leave their house. That's me. I'm real realistic. Yeah, but the visionaries never get to the end of the month. They've spent all their money before they get to the end of the month. I mean, you, you need this balance. There's nothing, there's nothing sinful here. It's just different. Extrovert and introvert. My wife's the extrovert. We go to conferences. We come to church. She's always surrounded by people. Nobody talks to me. <laughs> and I'm happy. Please do not feel obligated to talk to me so that you can make me feel welcome here. I'm already welcome. I know that. Just leave me alone. I'm an introvert. How many are you out there like me? We don't get good press. We have our stocks are very high. There are few of us. Okay. Free spirit. Highly organized. My wife and my son. Oh, these are free spirits. They just enjoy life. They're just, they're out there just having such a great time. But it's people like me and my daughter who are highly organized that keep things in order and keep things running so people like that can enjoy life. <laughs> and this, you just, this grates on you constantly. And so now sin comes in and now all of this kind of stuff, not just the differences between men and women, you know, they're different. But this kind of stuff, we use this as a bludgeon to beat our wife or our husband. You know, your problem is you're a visionary. What do we do with the sin issue and at the same time allow our spouse to be a suitable help? Let's throw that next, next one up there. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 5, which is the chapter in the entire Bible where you have more information on what marriage is all about and how it should work than any other portion of Scripture, okay? Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He made a sacrifice with the purpose of making the church, in this case, holy. Husbands, it is your job to love your 
wife in such a way, making whatever sacrifice is required to help her to become more like Christ. You can't make her. Don't try. That's not the right approach. You make yourself available. You love her. You help when she allows you to help. Wives, this is not a one-way street. Uh, While this particular portion is directed to men, it's pretty obvious. Wives, love your husbands just like Christ loved the church with the goal of helping your husband become more like Christ, recuperating that image of God that's in him that was so terribly damaged by the sin of Adam, which he inherited. He just born with it. You see where this is going? Um, we're supposed to be a help to one another, not the enemy. And it's, and it's important for married couples to remember, the enemy is not your spouse. The enemy is the sin that is in both of us. Don't get confused about who the enemy is here. The enemy is the sin that is in us. But together, we can help one another to become more like Christ. It means you've got to be open. <laughs> Let your wife say what she really thinks. Let your husband express himself correctly, graciously, lovingly. I mean, it's not about pounding a person over the head with something. But this, this thing of allowing our spouse to make, help us become more like God. Again, you don't have to get married to do this. There are a lot of Christian people that would love to be your friend and would love to help you with it. You don't have to get married to do this. But if you're married, man, the pers- first person you ought to be counting on is, in principle, the person that loves you the most. Now, here's the third thing that comes out. This one in chapter 3. In chapter 3, Moses dedicates nine entire verses to telling Adam and Eve how their sin is going to affect them and all of mankind that's coming up behind them. And this is the way it affects us. Look what he says. So the woman, he said, because he's, he, you know, he's kind of talking to the man, he's talking to the woman. He says to the woman, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. That's part of the consequences of sin. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Now, here's the zinger. And this is a very delicate subject. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Where did that come from? Before you jump to conclusions, may I suggest to you that what we're describing here, especially, and he will rule over you, is not the introduction of leadership into the world. In this case, there's only two people around, you know, Adam and Eve. And for the first time in the history of the world, leadership is being introduced. But rather, a description of how the leadership that Adam and Eve, Adam had in his relationship with Eve as a married couple before the fall and how the fall and sin is going to corrupt that leadership. Now that leadership, look at me, it's going to be like that. I'm going to tell you what to do, and if you don't do it, I'm going to hit you. You do it my way or the highway. I don't care what you think. Mine is the only opinion. You, 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 you know where I'm going with this. That's this. Rule is a very nasty word. And then you got, your desire will be for your husband. Basically, the wife says, 
All right? You want to do it your way? We'll do it your way. But when the thing doesn't turn out right, don't come crawling back to me. If you didn't want my help, you're not getting it now. You get what you deserved. I mean, this is the way it works, and you can understand how this works. Now, where do you get all that? Okay, stop for a minute. Let's take a look at this next slide. You don't have a lot of verses on this in the New Testament, but enough that makes it clear that in the Trinity, in the Godhead, there is leadership and, if you will, followership. In 1 Corinthians 11, it says, I want you to realize that the head or the uh, leader of Jesus Christ is God. Now, in the New Testament, every time you run against, into the word God, it's a reference to God the Father, because in the Old Testament, the Trinity is not fleshed out. That comes in the New Testament. So in the New Testament, when you see God, it's almost always a reference to God the Father. And what he's saying here is the Father leads the Son. In fact, we're talking Christmas. In Hebrews, there's a verse where the author uh, captures the conversation that Jesus has with the Father just before he comes to earth to be born. And Jesus says, Here I come to the earth to do your will, O Father. In other words, the Father said, Son, I want you to go to the earth. I want you to be born. And I want you to die to cover the sins of everybody who is willing to accept you as their Savior. And Christ says, yes, sir. Very, very interesting. Then when Jesus is here, he tells his disciples, look, it's, it's beneficial that I leave, because unless I go away, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will... I will... Uh, in other words, he gets to heaven... He calls over the Holy Spirit, says, look, I want you to go and I want you to dwell in every one of those who put their faith and trust in me and help them to live the Christian life. And the Holy Spirit says, yes, sir. Very interesting. There's leadership and followership in the Trinity without any hint in the Bible that one of these is superior or inferior to the other two. The fact that there's leadership does not mean what it means in a sinful world. That's something else again, but not in the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit, who does he lead? Romans chapter 8 is the big chapter in the Bible about who's the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8. And in that chapter, it says, you want to know who are children of God and who are not children of God? Those who are led by the Spirit... Those are the people, the Spirit of God, those are the people that are the children of God. You want to recognize, you want to, you want to detect who's a Christian. Look and see who is following the Holy Spirit. Because when the Spirit says to you and me, I want you to do this, what is the right response? Yes, sir. That's the right response. You know why? We're the creation. We're not the creator. I don't care how big we are on ourselves. We're nothing more than the creation. Wonderful creation. <laughs> God thinks highly of us. It wasn't for nothing that he sent his son to die for us. But we're just the creation. All right, now, what I'm suggesting to you then is that when God creates marriage, the same leadership you see there in the Trinity comes out in marriage because it's part of the nature of God, it's part of his image, it's part of what he's like, 
And then when you come to chapter 2 or chapter 3, verse 16, and you say this man's going to rule over you, this is not the introduction of leadership into the marital relationship. This is the description of how sin is going to corrupt leadership in marriage. And it ain't pretty. It isn't good. All right, then um, what, what are we looking for? Okay. If the husband really accepts and understands the image of God in his wife, he will see her as an equal, and you will see this in the way he treats her. You don't treat equals like dirt. They're not slaves. Very simple. There's no rocket science here. It's just, it's very simple. You know when people treat you with respect because they see the image of God. You might be a wretched soul, you know, <laughs> living like you shouldn't. But you have been created in the image of God, and you respect that in that other person, especially so in the marriage relationship. The husband that understands the biblical principle that his wife is a suitable help, it's not that he allows her, out of the goodness of my heart, I'm going to allow you to help me. No, that's paternalistic. No, the, the man that understands that promotes his wife's participation in those decisions in which Either one of the two feel, no, this is a decision we need to make together. Because there are some decisions in marriage that who cares who makes them. For example, how many of you guys decide the menu? What you're going to eat? I don't either. I mean, you know, it's not my thing. I'm not going to make the food. My wife decides the menu. She says, what do you want for supper? I say, honey, whatever you want. I mean, you know, I don't live to eat. I eat to live. It just the way I am, anyhow, and, uh, you know, I'm not going to decide the menu. My wife is an absolute genius with money. She never studied it, but she gives conferences all over Spain and how to live on the 90% you earn so God gets his 10%. She's a genius in money. I don't decide money issues in our family. I defer to her wisdom because she knows what she's doing in this case. She'll come to me and she'll say, uh, honey, what do you think we should do with this investment or the other? I said, honey, that's way beyond me. Do the best you can. And if you make a mistake, you make a mistake. I mean, you can't win all battles, can you? You can't always choose perfectly. You did the best you could. We move on and it's no big deal. Money isn't the biggest thing in the world. It's as important as it is. I'm not going to let this ruin our marriage. Do the best you can. And she gives me allowance for coffee in the newspaper and gasoline. And I'm more than happy because that's a huge responsibility. Now, I take care of the car. She doesn't want to have anything. There's certain things like that. We share. We delegate. There's no big deal. But when you, when you um, have a, a, a big decision to make and one of the two says, I think we should make that together, it's automatic. It should be made together. Yeah, but... Um, how, how do you um, reach an agreement when you can't reach an agreement? Let's throw the next one on, Vince. Here's what happens. What are your options as a man? You can compromise. My wife wants black drapes. I want white drapes. Would you take gray or maybe black with little white stars on them or something? Be, be creative. I mean... Sometimes, you know, just a little bit of conversation and you can come out with something. Everybody gives a little bit. Everybody gains a little bit. Hey, we move on. It's not worth arguing for five weeks about the color of the drapes. You agree with that? I mean, why lose your marriage over the color of grapes? Or grapes. Drapes. 
compromise. Wait for more information. Normally, when you don't know what to do in a situation, normally it's because you're lacking a bit of information that would just swing it one way or the other. You've all gone through this. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Maybe you're looking for the information, can't find it. All of a sudden, it drops in your, drops in your lap, and you say, oh, it's, it's obvious now. That little bit of information makes the decision. It's not even, I don't even have to make a decision. It's so obvious what I need, okay? And sometimes you can just put off a decision. We agree to disagree until we get more information. That's smart. Is the man still the head of the home? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not going into all the verses in the New Testament on that. We don't have time for that this morning. But here's another possibility. You're the head of the home. You choose. You do not have the only word. You have, however, the last word because there are situations where somebody's got to make the last decision. I mean, we can't keep going on like this. We're, we're at the end of our rope, and we either make a decision and save ourselves, or we go over the cliff. I mean, somebody's got to make... You know that this, this is just politics, your business, uh, wherever you... Your, your, your neighborhood, whatever you've got going, you know, it's just... It's just it, you come to that point. But the husband, another option he has is you choose your wife's suggestion. She wants to go left. You want to go Right. You talk about it, you just can't reach an agreement, and you say, okay, honey, we'll go left. That's not giving up, it's just being smart. It's not being paternalistic, you know, the goodness of my heart we're going to do. It's none of that. It's just that, guys, sometimes it's just not worth it. To win a battle, if in the process you're going to risk losing the war, your marriage... Do you agree with that? I mean, some things are just not worth it. It's just not worth it. Give her black drapes. Who cares? Oh, but I care. Well, don't care. <laughs> I mean, it's just there's certain things in life that just aren't worth it. However, if you as the head of the home, you have the last word, not the only word, the last word, you say, okay, honey, we're going to do it your way. And if it doesn't turn out right, you have no right to say to your wife, I told you so. Because you made the decision to do it her way. Besides, we are not perfect. We do not always make the right choices. Give her a little bit of mercy and tolerance, as she should with you, because we're, we're going to make mistakes, not because we want to, but because we're not perfect. Are you with me so far? Is this reasonable? Now, here's the last one. You choose your decision, your suggestion. There are times when you just, you can't reach an agreement. Now, I've got a wife who's very smart, wonderful person. Like many of you men here, I also married beyond my possibilities. And I'm not trying to be romantic this is one smart woman, gracious. Everybody loves her. It's hard to find a fault in her. But you just can't, you can't, you cannot. In Spanish, some of you understand Spanish. We say, hablando la gente se entiende, which translated... There's no way of translating in just a few words, but it basically means, look, if you talk enough about a decision to be made, you will reach an understanding. Folks, 
We've been married 48 years. This is not a woman who I say, we're going left, and she says, yes, Buana, whatever. This is not that kind of woman. God bless you if you have that kind of a wife. I don't. I say, go left. She's uh, left. She says, go right. I say up. She says down. She says white. I say black. I mean, every, by the way, you know those four things about the introvert and extrovert? The authors say, the authors say that in most, in most couples, they'll be different in two, maximum three of those four options because, you know, the opposites attract and all that kind of thing. You've heard that, you know, that little phrase? Two, maximum three. We are different in all four of them. No matter what one of us suggests, the other will automatically go to the opposite extreme. Not because we're trying to be mean, we just see things differently. Ah, the advantage is nothing escapes us. If we're willing to sit down, take the time to thrash it out in the right sense of the word together, we come to an understanding, there's no glitch that escapes us because she comes at it from one viewpoint, I come at it from another viewpoint. Well, what do you do if you can't? Well, if you can't, he has the last word. But let me tell you something. Hablando la gente se entiende? I cannot remember. I'm being very honest with you. I cannot remember the last time in our marriage when I had to say, Carolyn, We've got to make a decision. I'm going with what I think we should do. I can't remember the last time we did, we did that. You know why? Before you get to that point, if you take the time and you really respect your wife, she's in the image of God, she really has something to offer to you. Yeah, you have the last word, but you don't have the only word. In most cases, you're just going to come out with agreement. You may make a bad decision or a good decision, but at least you're agreed. That's worth something. Now, all this is nice. What are the possibilities of pulling this off? This is the last verse that you need to see this morning. This is a great verse that we're putting up here. It is God who works in you to will the willingness Sometimes you have to say, God, I'm not willing to do your will. Make me willing. Are, are you with me? Sometimes we're honest enough to say, you know, I'm not willing. Lord, <laughs> make me willing. He will. God works on us, not just the willingness, but also the ability to act, to do what we should do. With what goal? To fulfill his purpose. What's his purpose? Dad, I want to be like you are. And he wasn't talking about the ministry. You know what the goal is? Glorifying God. Now, there may be people here who have never made a commitment to Christ. Your, your biggest decision in front of you is, what are you going to do with Jesus Christ? He's the Savior. All of us are sinners, and you're one of them, and you need forgiveness of sins. You need to repent and ask Christ to forgive you for your sins, and ask him to come into your life, make you a child of God, and help you to start living the way you should. You may not be a real bad person, but you can't glorify God without being one of his kids, one of his children. Okay, that's the biggest decision you've got ahead of you. Now, what we've been talking about today, you can do this. You don't need God's help, if you understand what I mean, yet. 
because you, like the rest of us, because we're human, okay? I'm not justifying it, but we come to a point in our life where we're not even willing to do what we should, and we have to say, Lord, um, I'm not just asking for the power to do what's right. I'm asking for the willingness to do it. That's the kind of God we have. He's a good God. He's a good God. <laughs> it's worthwhile knowing this kind of a God. This is just one more reason why you need to become a child of God. Not just because of your sins and eternal punishment, you know, on the horizon if you don't. But this is the kind of a God that can help you in your marriage and make it what it should be. This is a good God. I trust that this year... It might be difficult, the worst year of your life, physically speaking, financially speaking, or whatever, but it can be the best year of your life, spiritually speaking, in which God makes the necessary changes in your life, gives you a better marriage than you've had up until this point. This is possible with God's help. Let's pray, thank him, stand on our feet, give him the glory for what he means to us, and take off and have a good New Year's celebration with our family. Father, thank you for being the kind of God you are. You've never let us down. You've never deceived us. But you've always been there ready to show us mercy and forgiveness, as well as giving us the willingness as well as the power to do what we need to do. Thank you for being our Savior. Thank you for what this season means to us in particular. Make this coming year the best years of our life, the best year of our life, spiritually speaking. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, is radically committed to reaching the unchurched in the Bay Area and to developing believers into fully devoted followers of Christ. Thanks again for listening.